Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkoff, and today my guest is Tim Benison, Chief Operating Officer of Hothead Games and a leader with nearly three decades of experience in the games industry. And together with Tim, we're going to talk about co-development. Now I know it's not the sexiest topic, but it's really something you shouldn't sleep on because of two reasons. Number one, studios of all sizes depend on co-development studios, whether they are looking to scale up their project, fill a gap in technical expertise, or just hit an important date. And the second reason is, as we know, the venture capital landscape, meaning how easy it is to get an investment, as well as self-publishing due to the, all the privacy changes, both of those have become more challenging. And many studios are looking to get into work for hire to keep their studios afloat. In this episode, we're going to dive in into the nuances of how to move into work for hire projects, how to engage with clients and build those long-lasting relationships. We're also going to talk about strategies that you should employ to succeed as a co-development studio. And we're going to talk about how to efficiently manage co-development and what is the exit scenario for a co-development studio. Because even though some of these are not venture-backed, the exit scenarios are there and they're quite interesting. I really hope you like this one. Send me a DM or a comment on Deconstructor Fun Slack channel. Really enjoy engaging with those and reading them. Um, and without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, an inside look into co-development. Welcome, 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 everybody, to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkov, and I have a fantastic guest for everybody. Um, Tim Benison, experienced technology company leader with unique mix of creative technical management skills and technical management skills. You have over 25 years in game development, visual analytics, computer graphics, VFX production, creative product development, building production capacity, and increasing revenue. You clearly have a sharp focus on innovation and efficiency. You have a passion for building great teams and great technology, and you've driven a lot of results. 7 million video games sold, 200 million in revenue via greenlit pitches, 3D VFX for over 20 feature films. And in addition, Tim, you're a board member for several technology companies and associations. I think I've, um, I think this is a, a correct way to introduce you to the show. So Tim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, so Tim, um, you're currently a chief operating officer at Hothead Games, and you've been at Hothead Games for nearly three years. What what led you to join Hothead Games? Uh, pretty simple. My former boss, Ian Wilkinson, who is the CEO of Hothead, uh, phoned me up one day. I was on a beach in northern Vancouver Island looking for orcas, and uh, you know, I was actually retired for one year. I'm that old. Um, and he said, why don't you come back and uh, I'd love to work with you again, because we had spent 15 years working at Radical Entertainment uh, here in Vancouver, which is a company he founded in, in the early 90s. So it was my second go around with him. So I said, yes. Vancouver has quite the, uh, the game development scene, right? Absolutely. It's a pretty big scene, probably second biggest in Canada after Montreal. It used to be the biggest. Um, and very tight knit, you know, like uh, everyone knows about recent rounds of layoffs everywhere happening. There's, there's been some in Vancouver. Everyone comes together and makes sure people land on their feet. And it, it's pretty heartening. And everyone knows everyone. I mean, it's probably similar to, to, to Helsinki, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, just, um, just but, much, much, much more beautiful. I don't know. I mean, I, I've never been where you are, but I mean, well, I, I hear good things. I've been in both. Let's, let's just say that, uh, that you take you take the cake on, on okay, the scenery. Okay, we win. All right, okay. 
That's true. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to live in the North Shore, North, North Vancouver, yeah. and uh, I do a lot of mountain biking, even though I'm yes. old. And it's like the Mecca, world Mecca for mountain biking. It's great. You're, you're not that old. Uh, you know, if you're watching this YouTube, you'll see it. And, and if you're listening, he's not that old. He, he looks mighty fine. <laughs> so, okay. That's good. I'm 59. I feel, I used to yeah. be the youngest kid in, in the tech you, companies. And now you I'm look not. no older, you're no older than 45. Okay. That's <laughs> very nice of you to say that. I love it. Which companies have you worked at uh, in Vancouver, like Capcom and right? Uh, well, in Vancouver, I started at Radical mm -hmm. in 95. I guess that's the start of my video game career. Um, went, worked there 15 years, background in tech, uh, EP, EP on various products. Uh, we got sold to Vivendi and then we were part of the Activision Blizzard mm -hmm. merger. And uh, so I, the last game I did there was Prototype. I was EP on that uh, for Activision. Um, then I spent seven years in the movie industry, which is like a different beast than games, that's for sure. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I ran Capcom Game Studio Vancouver for a couple of years. Um, and then and then after that, I retired. And then I ended up at Hot Hit. So that's kind of my trek. So I guess that's three game companies in Vancouver over, nice. over the years. Yeah. Nice. And then for folks who don't know Hot Hit, like maybe, maybe they don't know Hot Hit, but for sure they've played the game. So it's a 17-year-old developer. PC, console, mobile, again, as we, as we know, based out of stunning and uh, some would say stunningly expensive Vancouver <laughs> and uh, yeah. known, for, yeah, I'm, again, I've been there. I know. Uh, known for mobile games such as Sniper Game, Sniper Game, Killshot Bravo. And this, this, uh, I haven't played Killshot Bravo that much, but I really, like, I played a lot of the squad RPG slash like cover shooter hero hunters. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's currently operated under under Deca Games that, that take yeah. a lot of uh, older titles in, in their portfolio. But the quality on that game, stunning. Like the, uh, the the art, the design. I think it was it was really really beautiful game. And um, as of as of late, as I was researching hot headed games a little bit, um, it's gone to become more compact. So we've gone from over hundred developers uh, to to a little bit over fifty strong. So can you perhaps, Tim, talk a lot about like the last three years as you've been in the company? And, you know, those are, of course, the uh, the booming COVID years and, and the transformation of, of hothead games. Yeah, so you're right. We're well, I guess we're best known for Killshot Bravo and Hero Hunters, which are variations on shooters. And yeah, those are kind of mid-core games with, I'd say, mid-core to high mobile budgets of the day, you know, like four yeah. or five years ago anyway. And so the quality shows through. The guys did a great job on that. Um when I arrived, we, we were uh, moving into Idle. We, we, we tried to launch several Idle games. We launched uh, Box Office Tycoon. Mm -hmm. um, and we were looking at other, we, we went through a, a period where we were looking at all sorts of different genres. We really tried to expand our horizons. Um, so one of the results was we ended up doing a lot of interesting uh, co-marketing, co-publishing arrangements. Uh, we had one with Habby on Super Hit Baseball. Uh, we're now working with Voodoo on Super Hit Baseball. Um, and we're, you know, basically looking at ways to thread the needle on the self-publishing side, which we still are definitely into, um, but not take the whole load on ourselves in terms of the publishing. We do, we definitely do all the dev still. Mm -hmm. So that's our kind of self-publishing side. And that's how I've, I've kind of engineered that change in the light of all the, you know, the privacy changes we all know about and all the difficulties with, yeah. with UA and performance marketing. I think the theme, uh, I think the theme of this, this, this session, I think we're getting into is, is work for hire. So I think the, the, the idea is 
um, to manage risk. But as a COO, you're you're a chief obstacle remover. That's that's what I call myself, or and a chief risk manager, right? And one of the things that that's happened over the years, as many of your listeners will know, is self-publishing. You know, free-to-play mobile games has gotten a lot riskier, and it's a lot of more heavy lifting versus the early days when Hot had started. You know, we probably started in mobile. 12, 13 years ago, right? It's a lot different. Uh, so work for hire, offering your services to other people, IP holders, publishers, to do co-development deals or full development deals, soup to nuts, we, we can do it all, or even small pods, you know, where you're helping out, um, is a way to diversify your risk and, and get some really solid revenue and, and, build, and build relationships. So we decided to mix it up. So we're still self-publishing, um, in fact, we recently had an internal game storm where we solicited ideas from our employees who are the best sources of ideas. And there's a lot of excitement about that. So we've got, we got a lot of things going in early, what we call 0.1, you know, early, early pre-beta. Uh, but, the, you know, we, we wanted to mix it up and add in work for hire. So that's, that's generally the strategy right now that I brought in. Mm. Interesting. I have two questions regarding this. So one is pretty straightforward, and that is, you said you looked at idle games, which for me just sounds so weird, given the other uh, capabilities of the studio. Um, you know, I think anybody can do an idle game. I think very few can do a game like Hero Hunters. So, so, uh, so, how did you how did you evaluate different genres when when you were doing that and when you're still doing it? Well, it seemed like there was a there's a there's a I guess a phase th three or four years ago where th those kinds mm. of games were having a moment, shall we say? And there was there was lots of success stories in that area. So we we decided to dip our toe in there. It was, it was part of the diversification. I mean, I'm only, only telling you about one genre we, we, we moved into away from straight shooters um, and sports, which is the other thing we're known for. But that's, that's the one we kind of took about three or four dips into. Uh, you know, it's, I'm not sure if it's having a moment anymore. <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, there, well, there's some incumbents, there's some successful companies who specialize in it, but it's yeah, just like anything like else. A, like East Side, yeah. They, yes, they're doing side. really well. They, they do some good stuff. So the, the thing is, just like any genre that grows up and it, it becomes like uh, incumbents learn how to do it really well. And then they build moats either through performance or through, you know, scale or through pricing or whatever they want to do. And it becomes hard for, for entrants to come in like slightly after the, the fact. So um, I think the idea is to find, find the blue ponds, I call them, you know, and, and mm. we're, we're having some success can't talk about it. Can't give you scoops, uh, but <laughs> success is enough. You're having success, success that's, right that's now in, in all yeah. sorts of different, different areas that will come to light in the next you know, year or so, I'd say. So, yeah, I'm, I'm asking because, um, normally like normally w when I was thinking about, you know, making new games inside of a studio, the, the diff, the most difficult balance was having a balance between the three elements. And that is the, the type of games you want to make as a, as a development team, as a studio. Uh, the type of uh, games that you can actually make as a development studio. Like everybody would like to make a, a, a League of Legends, <laughs> but not many right. can do. Mm. And and the third part is the market. You know, looking at the market, as you said, like the, there was a moment where idle games were kind of popping and and you, you're looking at that. And and my kind of hypothesis and, and always the approach is that, that the the best route for each studio aligns in the middle when when you're making the type of game that that you actually want to make uh when there's an appetite in the market and when there's a capability to actually make a good game in this genre and, and not only make it but also publish it then then you're hitting it the uh the bullseye but that's only my 
um, approach to it? Like, like how did you approach the, these, these different genres? Well, I think you're right. I, I mean, overall, philosophically, I, I totally agree with you. I would add one extra element when it, when it comes to work for hire. It also be, has to be the type of game you can convince your client stakeholders mm. that you can make. Uh, you, you could have the other three things you just mentioned when you're dealing with work for hire, but if you can't convince them that that you could be, you know, king of the hill in that particular yeah. genre, you're, you're not going to get the job. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. That, that's true with everything. That's true if you're a part of a larger corporation, and that's true if you're independent because then you're talking to investors. So um, you have to always convince. That's actually a, a fourth fourth element, but that's usually like outside the team and more on the uh, the uh, the executives to uh, to do that that selling. Yeah, but unfortunately for me, I I have a feet foot in both worlds. So yeah, I know, I know, same thing. I, I consider myself a dev at heart. You know, I've I've gone to the dark side too. Yeah, <laughs> for a long time now. Um, and and so so let's talk a little bit about um. Actually, no, the second question. The second question was something that when when I worked with co development or uh, work you know, develop different development partners. Uh, one of the things that we always looked at is, are they purely co-development or are they doing something of their own? Because on, on the back of your mind, you're always thinking that if I was doing um, both, then I would put my premium resources in the, in the beginning and then I would offboard the other uh, premium resources off the project to do something of our own because of the uh, you know bigger return on that project. And, and the things are rolling so I can kind of train more junior people on, on the, uh, the existing project. Like, 
is that the right type of a thinking or from, from a client perspective or like, how do you, you know, how, how is absolutely it? Absolutely not. Life? Absolutely not. It's not the right way to think. Uh, if you're going to okay. do work for hire, you have to be transparent with your client. You have to be honest and open. And if you're booking, you know, a certain crew of people and you're, you're giving resumes and bios to the client and you're doing a bait and switch, you're, you're not going to be in the business in the long run. Word gets around yeah. pretty quick, right? So I think the, the, the goal is to, to understand what their requirements are. Be honest. You might mix it up uh, with some juniors and some experienced people on the client team, and you might mix it up on your own IP development same way. But as long as you're open and the, and the client understands what they're getting and you stick with it, uh, everyone wins, right? Um, yeah, I, I think my theme, I think in terms of proper and, and good relationships with clients is, is honesty and, and transparency and communication. It's, it's pretty old school, but it works. Uh, I mentioned I worked at Radical for 15 years with Ian Wilkinson, from, you know, he's the CEO of Hothead. Um, we did work for hire for most of that time. And we learned the hard way to do it the way I just described and not any other way. And that's how we fostered some long-term relationships. We had repeat customers. Um, and we ended up getting acquired by one of our repeat customers. And so that's how you win in the long run. Mm. And that's that's perfect way of, of putting it. It's again, like working on the, uh, on the client side, those are the stories that always come up. And th that's something that uh, on the client side, you're constantly watching for those type of risks. Uh, but since you were mentioning of, of, basically the characteristics of a good co-development studio. Um, can you kind of like dive deeper into it? Like, you know, what, what are those, those elements and, and what makes a really good sort of a development partner, um, both in, both in terms of, um, as a business and, and as a development partner. So as, as a, as a client or service provider, but also as a business for the shell shareholders. Well, I think. It starts with the things I just mentioned, transparency, communication, honesty, um, being reputable. Um, but then it, every, every relationship's different. Every project's different. Like it depends on the scale of your involvement. Sometimes we work with IP holders like big media companies and they don't have any development capacity or publishing capacity. And there's a sort of a three-part deal. They have the IP and they want you to develop a game. So you're, you're providing all the services that you'd expect as a, as a developer of your own products. Um, sometimes we're just an embedded few engineers in, in a giant enterprise. And sometimes we're doing live ops. We're taking over live ops of a large running game that's been around for five years and makes lots of money. Um, depends on the relationship. Um, but I think the biggest thing besides the fundamental principles is ask lots of questions. Ask lots of questions. Don't do a lot of talking. You find out things that are surprising. And uh, and, I, and I'm I'm talking about even in the initial relationship phase, even the initial pitch phase, when you don't even have a business relationship and you're just like angling for work, you've got to talk to them and, and listen to their uh, hopes and dreams, the, obviously uh, about the product, what is, what is the vision for the product? But then there's also ask questions about their organization, their process, their relationship with first party publishing platforms, their relationship with their IP stakeholders, if there are some in the mix. And you know, understand what they're up against because you're, you're direct partners that you're dealing with the, the sort of publishing, the development relationship side of the, the IP holder, for example, if it's that relationship, they, they've got a lot of struggles too, and you can help them out and you can, you can, um, you can be, be, be their ally. And, and it, that obviously helps you as a service provider, get the deal and get the work, but it also helps them and everyone wins. So I think, 
I think understanding the nuances of not only the, 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 the creative brief of the product, but also the, the corporate situation that they're embedded in and how you can help them actually is really important. And, and how about from the shareholder's perspective? Because if you're a shareholder at an at a independent publisher, it's pretty easy to understand what the, uh, what the, you know, the goal is. Usually they get acquired or IPO, which is, you know, a form of acquisition, if you will. And it's a, it's a high risk, high reward type of a situation. But if you're, um, if you're a, a shareholder in, um, in a co-development studio, what is, what, what makes, you know, how do you make that type of a business attractive to shareholders? Well, there's a couple of ways. Um, first of all, uh, the, the revenue is, and, and the profitability is much more predictable than uh, taking big swings all the time and going for home runs and failing and then succeeding once in a while. Um, you, can, you can bake in profit from day one of a project, right? That's how work for hire works. So from a, from a stability perspective, investors like that. Um, but the other way that investors can cash out and have a liquidity event and whatnot, if you're primarily a work for hire studio, which is basically what happened to Radical Entertainment, I should mm -hmm. mention, um, is that you become a, uh, an essential service to a IP holder or a, or a publisher, whoever your, your, your big client is. Um, you might sign a, eventually sign a master development agreement where you're doing multiple products and you become such a, a key driver of product and therefore revenue for the, for your partner that they angle to acquire you. And then there's a, a, a nice event for investors of the, of, of our company, for example. Um, mm. so it's, it's not necessarily, uh, uh, bad news to an investor that, uh, that a previous, you know, self-published pure, you know, take swing for the fences type studio is actually mixing in work for hire. It, it actually, I think, increases the types of exits that they can have, right? Mm. Um, from just and, the, having the big hit. Yeah, and, and you're probably looking at a different type of investor because if you're looking for a VC, they need the, uh, the companies to swing and understanding that most of them will miss and most of them will go bankrupt. Uh, but but in, in, in these cases, you're probably looking for a little bit more conservative investors who are perfectly happy with, with, the, with the dividend producing company that does have uh, an exit scenario in mind, but it's not going to be as, as, uh, as big, but it's most likely good. Like if everything works as it should be, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's still, uh, more likely to happen if you will. Yeah. It's more likely it's perhaps not, you know, a billion dollar exit, but it could be, you know, multiple nine figures, right? Like, is that a billion dollars? I don't know. I, I don't fly in those, in that stratosphere. Maybe you could look yeah. it up on a calculator, but you know, it, it's, uh, it happens, right? I live through it. Um, and it's, I wouldn't call it small. It's, yeah, it's, it's a nice chunk of change. Right. So uh, I think, I think, um, you're right though. It's not, we're not talking like, you know, necessarily Silicon Valley, BC money yeah. or anything like that, but there's, there's a lot of, there's an ecosystem yeah. of investors out there. You're well aware of that. So exactly, exactly. It's just, just takes different investors as it should be. There should be different investors for different type of companies and, and, um, and yeah, uh, totally, totally understandable. Um, you actually, you mentioned a few things that makes a really good co-development studio. You said honesty, transparency. I missed a couple of two. Uh, um, communication. I mean, yes, just both ways. And I think, um, it's the job of the, the vendor the you know, us to 
foster the communication um, right. because it's not you, you can't just sit there with your arms crossed and be told what to do and, and exactly uh, you, you've got to really try to build bridges and, and you know there's lots of when you're dealing with larger usually the clients larger much larger and you know they they have their own issues the people that you're working yeah. with um, inside a corporate environment as you're you may be well aware you got to be understanding of that it's easy to be oh those guys you know like i wish you know they need to get a clue right no yeah. it, there's a lot of different things going on you may not even understand a lot of them yeah and um you just have to try to it wins that it, so everyone wins both sides win and and not even think of it as 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 sides um communication though it goes it goes deep like it also factors into the the contracts um the the the, the details um we've learned the hard way i mean back in back in the day at, at radical i'm really talking um if you don't paper the the deal properly uh it's sadness all around eventually because um there's all sorts of ways that things can screw up that are nothing to do with the talent of the team yes. or, or its results. And they're in, they're in the business terms, the mistakes made in the business terms. And so you have to get that right as well. So. Yeah. Honest, transparent, and communicative. That's a, that's a, those are really, really important three pieces for, for every studio, but, but yeah, to, totally understand. And, um, what, uh, what are then the other, the challenges of running, a um, development for Hari studio? Like again, in, in addition to the execution, which I assume is the, uh, you know, the most important part and the, and the communication, uh, it's probably the deal flow and making sure that there's no quiet periods. That's always the big, the big one, right? Cause you, the way the games industry works, or at least, at least our type of company, all of our employees pretty well are full-time permanent. We, 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 we have some outsourced contractors, but I'd say it's important to us that we have a culture and so you got to have full-time permanent people and they and they want to be part of our culture and the only way you're going to get that is if they're full-time permanent so you have mouths to feed you know and everyone takes a salary every two weeks right so your deal flow the, the money earning side of uh, of your business that the projects you're working on for clients has to be constant has to be well thought out um you know that i don't know if you ever saw there's a play, Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, you know, about some real estate salesmen. It's a sort of satire. Always be closing is what they say. Uh, always be closing, yes. right? Like, well, that's true in work for her, but also always be pitching. You know, uh, we, we, you always have to be out there looking for work is what I'm trying to say. And um, that is one of your mitigation strategies for, for getting, making sure this deal flow is, is smooth. Now that's an, in it of itself a challenge. Pitching these days, I'm I'm finding out because um, you know we only flipped to this hybrid model about a year ago, uh, is a different beast than you know two decades ago when when I was doing it radical. Um, clients are very savvy, especially the big media corporations, and they're very demanding in their requirements uh, for for pitches, and the, and it's very competitive too. There's a lot mm -hmm. of people doing it in the industry now. Um, so you have to really put your best foot forward, which means you're doing a lot of free work with very high powered, talented people in, on your side. Um, and in short timeframes, ridiculous timeframes, like, you know, designing games, um, doing, get, coming up with their pillars, their business models, how they fit in with an IP, showing you understand the IP at an intimate level and get it all done in one week and compete with 20 other studios. Yeah, yeah. it's a tough, so it's a tough, that's a tough part of, of, of the whole thing as well. Uh, back, back in the, back in the days, no, like a few years ago, I was actually, uh, 
contracted for um for for a good time i think maybe over for two years for a hollywood um studio no studio hollywood publisher i don't know what they're called uh, a media conglomerate <laughs> to uh to review those pitches coming in from uh from different outsources for their different uh ips as they were pitching them around the world of can you make us a game? And I was, I was the one going through your, your, you are the back guy, in the yeah. days. I, I was on, I well, like, not these guys, these guys. Yeah. yeah we're learning, we're learning the game a little bit. I mean, it's a game of chess, right? But one of yeah. the techniques, I mean, you know, for this free advice out for your listeners is, yeah. um, have a lot of meetings early in the pitch process with the people who are going to be approving, you know, green lighting your, your pitch, right? Uh, throw them something, throw them a bone. And then triangulate and they'll say, no, no, not this, this. Yes, we like that. Not that. Come back to them again. What are you about this? This. No, no, not that. Zero in on it and long before the due date. And then when you hand in the thing, you've got a, ch you've got a chance because you've triangulated with the people who are actually making the decision rather than just like, you know, standing on the mount, sitting on the mountaintop and coming up with your grand vision and, it, you know, handing it in and it, and it misses the mark completely. It wasn't what they wanted. Yeah. And Pretty obvious, but. Yeah, but but I would say having a having a great reel is is super important as well because again, working on the client side, sometimes you're just seeing something you're like this this, but with our IP, can we do this 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 thing that you guys did that, that is in the reel? Like it can be as easy as that, and then it goes into uh, you know personally like like having worked with co-development studios, it, it was a lot of the time it was like the time zones are really important, um, you know the type of games that they've done before. And of course, who do you know? So, so it's like, if we have mutual connections, then those are sometimes, you know, the winning side and due diligence is just like, oh, we know those and those, let's, let's, let's give it a month. Let's, let's kick it off even as fast because they came in as a recommendation from somebody who was a source already in the company or an investor or so forth. So, so having that roller decks, uh, is, is quite important as well. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we're finding we're often pre-qualified by both the IP holder, the, the, the potential client of ours, and if there's a first party platform involved by them as well, they'll have already done their due diligence on us. So we're not actually having to convince them about Hothead as a good yes. developer, a good standing and able to do this genre because they can see our track record everywhere. Yeah, um, It's more about now let's talk about particular team you have available let's talk about the idea you have that marries with our ip and let's let's if it's a three-way deal let's go to the first party and see if, if they like that combination so yeah you don't even get in the door if if, if they if, if you don't have a reputation like yes that's that's and that's one of the advantages we have because we've been in the business for so long and we've you know had quite a few good games um and across different genres too we we do get invited to 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 participate in some of these bidding these, these pitch exercises I, yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like if you didn't have a track record. If you're a bunch of new guys trying to get together a, a company that's doing work for hire, really tough, really. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game 
game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier your bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iframes, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. Yeah. Quite oftentimes, like what happens is uh, as a company self-publishes and, you know, doesn't see much success in what they were doing, but the quality is good. And then they move into co-development and they're actually finding a lot of success in, in, in co-development side or, or work for development because they've essentially proven that they can do great quality, but there might've been issues with product design in terms of like modern modernization, publishing elements, like all these things that are not really how well you can make a game or not even having an IP, but more like you can clearly execute against a design and, and, and against gameplay and against the art and, and against budgets and timelines. But it seems like you're missing the, you know, the key business uh, sources, whether it's the product marketing or monetization or, or whatnot, or even live operations. So, so that's, that's, that's something that I've seen happening quite a lot. Yeah, you're right. Or it could be, as you just hinted earlier, um, it's the perfect game. It just needs an IP. That actually yes. is going to drive it and, and break through the noise. And the publisher yeah. has that, obviously, that the client has that. And boom, you've got a good combo. Yeah. I, I, no wonder you're, 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 you know, in the door, like pre-approved. Because again, as I said, I've, I've actually played Hero, Hunt, Hero Hunters quite a lot. And there was a, I think the fantasy game was before or after that, like the reskin of that. So it kind yep. of shows the quality that you can do. The character design was really nice. The animations, everything was like really high quality of a game. And then it also shows that you can totally change a setting and a theme and, a, and, and everything and, and kind of like launch a game again uh, that, that looks very different but plays the same. So that kind of like is a testament of the, uh, of the maneuverability and flexibility of the studio as well as the execution power. So, so no wonder uh, you're, uh, you're pre-approved in that sense. I'm glad you're saying um, that. That is, that is one of our hallmarks. We, we, we've done several internal big projects that haven't seen the light of day yet with major uh, clients in the last sort of six months. And those two things, flexibility of applying our character design, our animation skills, the, the flavoring that you saw in, in our own products, but translating it to a completely different genre, the, the, the speed we were able to do that and the speed we were able to execute was pretty astounding to the, yeah. to the client. And I think that's another, you know, as a work for Har studio, you gotta be fast. You gotta be fast in every way, fast and not just good, not just great in your execution, but fast. Uh, and how about, uh, so fast and, and cost effective, I would assume is the other part. Like a lot of the time you're looking for co-development because not only are they proven, they give you the more manpower, they give you, you know, you don't have to scale your own organization, which is incredibly 
difficult, both in terms of culture, in terms of time it takes to hire people, uh, but it also is quite expensive to run your own recruitment process. So, so how is the uh, the cost structure? I mean, you guys are based in Canada, and again, Vancouver. I know what's up, in, it's not as cheap as Helsinki, like. Well, we, we have, again, we're across Canada. We have a crew in the Maritimes, crew in Montreal, uh, some people scattered in the provinces in between. We're not all in mm-hmm. Vancouver's. And plus Vancouver, you, you, you haven't been to the, the parts that aren't quite as nice, um, which uh, are a I've lot I've been cheaper. to the Chinatown. I've been to Chinatown in that area. Um, you have okay. a little piece of San Francisco in the city. So yeah, we do. We do. What, I, what I'm saying is there are nice, pretty nice and ch- way cheaper <laughs> places to live further out of the city that, that, a, that a visitor yeah. would not go to. Like not yeah, you don't have to be a gaslight district or no, 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 no. Um, yeah, I mean, cost, it's interesting. Um, many of the, the, the clients we have or, or prospective clients as well, they're not that sensitive to cost. They're more sensitive to quality and ex- ability to execute and, and speed. And yeah. yeah, they could, they could go to cheaper markets, which probably have a cheaper, you know, man month rate than us, but they're going to have time zone issues. They're going to yeah. have. Um, they're going to have quality issues. Can they execute those kinds of questions are not. So the, the real big clients aren't super worried about, about the cost structure. And we, we mm-hmm. kind of come in, I don't think we are, we're, we come in down the middle, I think on cost, yeah. it's not our intention to overcharge, but we're not the cheapest game in town. We're not going to, going to claim that, but you know, you get what you pay for. Right. Um, yeah. I think that that's a huge value that you are essentially in the West Coast. Not essentially, you are in the in the uh, in the West Coast time zone, uh, so that helps a lot because the uh, the biggest, you know, American publishers are are based out of there. So essentially, it's the straight line, same time zone, um, and in the cost structure like that, that's actually true. I've seen the same thing happen in in the sense that that is not the important part, but I've also seen you know talking again out of Finland, being here, seeing the uh, the different studios, it has helped them to be very profitable because they are operating under the, uh, the West coast, um, budgets and we do not have West coast budgets over here. <laughs> we have, uh, we have Calgary budgets or whatever, Alberta. <laughs> kind of well, I don't know. That that's not a cheap place either. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I was just, I was just trying to find Winnipeg, like something okay, in the there middle. You go. <laughs> now you're talking, now you're talking. <laughs> I just yeah. know the hockey teams. That's the thing. I'm, I'm just going to throw around hockey teams until okay. it sticks. <laughs> All right. You try Ottawa. Well, I'm from Ottawa. You got to mention the Ottawa yeah. Senators. Come on. Yeah. It's, yeah, well, you know, it, it is a team. Uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ryan Reynolds might buy it, so that would be awesome. I think yeah. it's too too good for him. I think he needs to buy <laughs> something that's in the junior teams. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever their farm league. But uh, but yeah, that so, so that's that's actually a, a big uh, competitive uh, element that you guys have is is the time zone. Um. So kind of like turning the, uh, the tables around, because you talked a lot about like how the, uh, the co-development studio needs to be honest, transparent, communicative, really understanding their clients and being proactive, uh, in, in all the ways they're working, like being the perfect partner, uh, that leads of course, to the long relationships, the master agreements and eventual potential exits. But what is a good client? Like you probably work with all kinds of different clients. Like what is your expectation of a, of a perfect client? Perfect client, well, no, nobody's perfect, so you'll never see no, a perfect person. client. But, but I mean, ideally, uh, I think the one of the biggest ones is uh, decision-making process and structure is clear to the client and to us, right? So we've had cases where 
we thought we were talking to the, the stakeholders and decision makers, and we were given a certain direction. We went off and did a bunch of work. And then it turns out, oh no, in the background, there's another stakeholder could be, could even be an actor or it could be a movie director, or it could be an IP creator who doesn't sign off on the direction. And so you've wasted a lot of work and it's very frustrating for everyone. And it's just not cost-effective. So that's one thing the, the structure of the decision-making is very clear. And another one is, you know, let us do what we do. You know, like we're professionals, we know how to run a team. We know how to do development. We, we, sometimes we deal with, with people on the other side who are micromanagers and they, and, and yet they don't have the experience we have. And that's, that can be very problematic because they're, they're sticking their nose in everything and they're telling us how to, you know, not hire this junior person because they're junior. And we don't want junior. Well, but yeah, but this is the top person in computer science at their university. Yeah. We know they're a genius. Can we please hire them and put them on our project for your benefit? No, we only want people with five years experience. Well, I mean, that's, that's a small example of how meddling from a client can, can cause problems. Generally, we don't see that though. I mean, I'm, I'm painting worst case scenarios. Yeah, you know, of course. Um, generally, people do have clear decision structures. And they do, they are hands off. They, they know that they're hiring us because we know how to build games. So don't tell them how to build games. Instead, remove obstacles, give them the overall vision, tell them as much as, as, as we can about the business, you know, case and the business, uh, prospects of the, of the, of the project. So that in another, if, if it affects, you know, design, for example, we, we need to let them know and, and handle handle the side, the, the part of the business that's, that's not dev. Those are the best clients. Mm. Okay. I wrote a lot of things down. So clear decision-making process. That's totally understandable. Um, you're in a pitching business a lot of the time and, and understanding who are the stakeholders. Yeah, that that's good. Cause then you can talk directly to the key stakeholders rather than being, having this broken telephone and, or even functioning telephone between them. Uh, autonomy over micromanagement. Uh, I can totally relate to that. Um, vision, like communicate, like understanding the vision in the business case. So you're really like not just doing the development, but you're understanding the end product and what is going on here. So that's important. And then, uh, overall acting them as a, as a meat shield slash obstacle removal. So basically just giving, giving the, uh, the autonomy and, and the, um, the peace and quiet to execute rather than focusing on useless reporting or pivoting or changing of the timetables, because now we need to present to some executives, this wasn't actually the case. Can we quickly make a little demo and your timetables are suffering and now everything is in, in, in the sort of a chaos mode because even the small asks usually harm a well-oiled machine. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, although I would say it's the, you, you, you've chosen to play the game of work for hire. So you should expect to always be pitching. Uh, and that includes after you've gotten the deal and you're working on the project, there could be on the client side, a new executive, you know, changeover. I've, I've experienced that. And you need to repitch the project on behalf of the, so you're working with a certain layer of, of people in the client. They're still mm -hmm. on board. They love what you're doing. You're halfway through, but a new layer of executives comes in above them and they need to be convinced this project should continue. So the team has to almost down tools and do a demo or whatever internally that's never going to see the light of day just to keep the project going. That's okay. You should expect mm -hmm. that, especially with larger scale projects. It happens all the time. And it's not, I don't know, it's, it's just 
the price of doing business is a work for hire studio. It's not like the, some annoying thing I wish they would get out of our, our, our it, way. It's of. some, it's something that any studio has to do. You have to focus on managing up. That is, that is the, the, the number one thing for the, uh, for the executives that you have is, is to manage up the relationship. And, and as you said, there's different type of leaders that might be like, they will change and they might be changing and they have different types of goals and agendas and, and ways of leading. And you have to just figure out and, and the, the most important thing is just having great relationship, whoever is in charge. And if somebody changes that that's no, no factor, you just go there and establish again, a great relationship with the next person. Uh, so, so I think it's, yeah, it happened um, to me. I mean, the best example that I, I did a game called prototype for Activision and it started out, it was greenlit by Vivendi. Um, it was a three and a half year development, you know, big console development. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, I had to pitch that thing many, many times after I pitched it to get the green light yeah. for years to keep it going. Um, and I just realized this is the game. This is, this is what you sign up for. So you know, get with it, you know, stop, stop feeling grumpy about it. Exactly. It's a, it's an attitude question. You can't be like, oh, I hate this. Or this company is so disorganized. I have to do this. Like, no, it's a, it's part of the job. They're spending a lot of money on developing it and you have to reinstate the belief because eventually like the, the executive who is in charge is on the hook for what you're making. And that's why he needs to be, or she needs to be, uh, reassured that, that the money spent is, is smart because otherwise they'll, they're going to be like, oh, uh, they're going to lose their job. So it's, it's serious for them as well. And, um, and kind of like putting yourself in the, uh, in the other person's shoes is, is super important in, in all kind of situation and in, in, in this one as well. So, uh, people just need to kind of get over themselves and then understand what other people are kind of going through as well. So, yeah, empathy, um, empathy. Yeah. That's the word. Yes. Empathy. Yes. Have empathy. That's true. That's a, that's a, that's not a, that's a, you know, there's not too much of that in the world. So, no. so, um, kind of like looking forward, like, what do you see the future of, of, uh, development for hire or co-development, uh, shops and, and how do you see hothead games standing in, in this future? Well, I definitely think as a trend in the industry, as you've hinted, it's happening. It's, it's, uh, you know, more, more and more people are getting into it. So, I mean, that's cool. And it's also, there's more competition, um, in terms of hothead, we, so we are diversifying from straight free to play mobile. Obviously that's our core, core skill. We, we have a track record in that, but, uh, some of us at the studio also have a fairly decent track record in AAA console. So now we're registered console developers on all, all the consoles. So that's. That's pretty cool. And so we're taking on some projects in that area. We've also diversified, I think, in terms of, I don't know what you call them, verticals, market verticals. Uh, we've done some metaverse stuff. Um, we continue to do that. Um, it, it turns out that some of the skills in free-to-play and some of the skills in open-world game design actually matter in metaverse. So that's interesting. We've also uh, done Web3 stuff. We continue to do that. Um, you know, obviously there's a downturn in that area, but I think it's, it's still a, a going concern. So there's still work there. Um, and we've even, you know, because of, I mean, I started out my, 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 my goal when I started out in the eighties was drawing pictures with computers. As long as I'm drawing pictures with computers, I'm, I'm cool. And so we've branched out into real-time, uh, visual effects for film and even real-time visual effects for super high end, uh, you know, VR, AR stuff. We have, we have some people with some very interesting skills at our studio that, that aren't just mobile free to play developers. And we're able mm. to leverage that a little bit. So we're getting into all sorts of different things and we'll see what sticks. All right. So I think that's a, that's good to end on that hothead games, honest, transparent, and communicative studio who understands their clients. 
who has a diversified portfolio on all platforms, working on all the different business models. And most importantly, if you're in the US or North America anywhere, they'll be in your time zone. <laughs> that's a good summary, that's, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> a good summary. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not leaving Vancouver. So yeah, time zone's good. All right. Um, I mean, Tim, thank you so much. This was uh, very enlightening on for a lot of listeners who are thinking about co-development, perhaps going themselves, or who are currently in co-development or who are working with co-developers or developers for hire. So thank you so much for sharing a lot of insights from your really impressive career. Um, very nice of you to say that. I'm not sure it's that impressive, but it was very nice to, to, to meet you and, and to be on the, on the podcast. And uh, yeah, um, good luck with what you're doing. I hope you get some vacation time. You're supposed to be on vacation. You're in Finland. Come on, it's July. Yeah. It's, uh, it's July, nobody, I'll, I'll go next week. Uh, and then everybody, if you're on a Deconstructor Fund Slack channel, there's about 200, 2,000 of you, uh, Tim is also there. So if you want to ask Tim any questions, talk about co-development, ping him directly on the Slack. So thank you everybody for listening and uh, catch you in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.